0: i'm matt rogan and this is the playbook podcast where leaders from inside and outside sport share practical advice with us for leading and managing through change today we're going to have a pretty broad chat about all things people strategy Many sports businesses we know are on the journey from being administrators or event businesses to media businesses, and that creates hosts of knock-ons in terms of the way that we lead and manage our people. Now, obviously, that's not a totally new subject for the Sports Pro Pod. Um, We've looked at a number of these areas before: from diversity and inclusion with Sonny Pert at Black Trino Runners, managing change with Alexandra Willis from Wimbledon, building culture with Tony Simpson and Oliver Wyman, the challenges of being the person in the leadership hotspot with Emma Barraclough at Chelsea Digital Ventures, and also Andrea Gaudenzi from the ATP. All of those, of course, you can find in our archive. But much as I've really enjoyed those conversations, we've had some great feedback. Truth is, we've hardly touched the sides in terms of the various areas that fit under people strategy. We could genuinely spend every pod between now and Christmas 22 on this one subject. So instead, I thought we'd try and cover a whole bundle in one go. From recruitment to managing high performers, pay to best practice in training, restructuring your business to what HR skills you need on the board. So for that really wide ranging chat, I was joined by Charlotte Hignett, a senior HR advisor and board director for a very apposite chat to come out on International Women's Day. Charlotte's senior career started as head of HR at FTSE 100 Business Curries, where she led significant business transformations and org design projects. In the last 12 years, she's consulted with a variety of organizations across sectors with a real focus on culture, engagement, org design, and diversity and inclusion. She's recently concluded the integration of a consultancy business into a big four consultancy firm and has driven in businesses in all sites, but also ownership structures from private equity to partnerships and limited companies and many more besides. She was also a brilliant partner to me during the early years of Two Circles, helping to build the culture and people strategy of our business from the ground up. I'm sure you find her experience is obvious, but also her pragmatism really refreshing. Before we crack on, if there are other topics on your senior leader to-do list you'd like me to cover through the course of the year, please do get in touch at matt at mattrogansport.com and I'll try and make sure we take up that challenge. And with that, on with the show. Charlotte, morning. Thanks for taking time to join us.
1: Hello. Nice to see you.
0: Been a while, hasn't it? Well, look, um, let's jump right in, if that's okay. Um, We've looked at a number of areas of people strategy on this Playbook pod before, um, but there are still an awful lot of areas we haven't covered. So in the time we've got, so 35, 40 minutes, um, let's try to cover as many as we can, if that's all right. And and I thought, uh, let's start at the beginning. So let's start with recruitment. Talent and recruitment. Where do you find great people nowadays, and has that changed? Do you think in the last five years or so?
1: So, so I think it has changed, um, and all the all the stuff that people did historically are still there. So, you know, clearly, recruitment agencies using press, all of those things are, are are still around. But what has changed is social media. Yeah. So, you know, LinkedIn absolutely is the predominant place for both individuals that are looking for a job, as well as for organisations to go and um post jobs. So uh, and it's a really great way of connecting quickly with a lot of people, you know, sharing your jobs um, through your network, getting people to share those through their networks. And actually you hit a lot of people very quickly and um, an opportunity to hit quite a diverse pool, bearing in mind, you know, people have quite diverse networks. So so LinkedIn really has taken the lead in terms of recruitment. Um, I mean, other great places, particularly if you have um, so a good brand presence, Glassdoor. Mm-hmm. So lots of organizations use Glassdoor um, because candidates are going on to Glassdoor to find out more about the organizations they want to work for. Um, so um, I think those are the things that have changed in the last few years. Um, I mean, organize, It's really interesting. Organizations still I see a lot using refer-a-friend schemes. Um, I have some concerns with that, yeah. and there are some definite watch-outs with regard to diversity. Yes. Um, But th- that is still used a lot. Um, but I think you know, LinkedIn is a great place um, and a great starting um, starting point.
0: Have you seen anybody? Um, do interesting things with regards you know you have let's make the assumption we've touched on this a number of other pods you can you you can encourage a more diverse um, applicant base Uh, have you seen organizations change the way they actually interview or actually assess people to reinforce that that diverse pool and make sure that that you know they're not being pre-selective or pre-judgmental in the way they they assess people
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I I think there are a number of things that you can do now. So there are um, there are decoders that enable you to write an advert for your job um, and you can put it through a decoding process that flags up things like, you know, language that is particularly um, going to attract men, for example, or um, so. So there's some quite clever, um, and there are lots of um, apps that do that, um, that are quite clever that people are using now to make sure that they, you know, at the point of advertising, right at the beginning, that they're, they're not just attracting a certain type of individual or detracting people, more importantly. Um, so that's quite common now. Um, blind CVs mm-hmm. are um, you know, very common, um so ensuring that people actually don't have any details about an individual in terms of background ethnicity gender etc um and also ensuring that any um any interviews that you have a representative panel yes so um you know lots of people have done um work around shortlists and so lots of companies have said well, actually, we want a shortlist that is gender balanced. Um, if they're make, targeting a particular area in terms of um, ethnic diversity, wanting to see that represented on a shortlist, but then end up with an all white male interview panel. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's really important to remember. that stage you know who are the people that are going to be representing the organization and making those decisions and making sure that that is representative as well Um, so so I think it has moved significantly over the last few years has it moved enough Um, probably not and I think you know lots of organizations I think have struggled with, you know, do we put targets around some of this? Um, uh, and clearly there are, uh, there are lots of factors to consider with that. Uh, I mean, I have a belief that you know, targets drive behavior. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, yeah. if you really want to make a, a, a significant change, then actually, you know, you need to measure it. And the only way to do that is, is, is through targeting.
0: Okay, so we found ourselves uh, a diverse talent pool we're really excited about. Have you noticed anything different when, when you do look very hard to uh, maybe encourage people um, who might be from very different backgrounds to those that, that the majority uh, are in your organization to just, just help them feel that this is somewhere for them, this is somewhere that they can feel welcome, this is somewhere that they can thrive?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Matt. And I think particularly as we look to bring a more diverse um, workforce together, that you know comes into sharper focus. Mm-hmm. So onboarding is so critical. And that happens from the point of offer. It's not just the point they actually physically start with you. So really starting to connect with individuals. And there are lots of relatively simple ways of doing that. Um, Interestingly, I was with somebody yesterday and they're about to start a new role. And on their first day, um, somebody's meeting them at Waterloo to walk them to the office. You know, really simple things. So really start building a relationship with people from the point of acceptance of an offer um, through their notice period, however long that is, Um, right through, you know, in the first month, three months of joining, it is really important you have a good plan in place. And I think if you're looking to bring people in from different backgrounds or, you know, particularly for um, school leavers or new grads, um, helping them navigate what is perhaps different or slightly alien to them, Um, in really simple ways, asking them very obvious things. I had a session with um, a group of very talented young people and um, one of the um, women, um, she was, this was her first job. Um, She comes from a background where people hadn't worked in, the sort of professional um, environment before in the corporate world. And so it felt very alien to her. And she said people kept asking her to go for a coffee and she kept saying no. And eventually somebody said to her, "Uh, are you not very sociable? And she was really thrown by the question. And she said, Mm. no, why? And she said, well, you, you never come for a coffee when people ask you. And that in her culture was not what people don't go for a coffee. That's not what she was used to, and she didn't understand that that was a thing people do at work or in that environment. And you know, it's such a simple thing, but actually, we forget that um, when somebody joins an organisation new, things that seem very obvious that we all do and that are part of that culture might be very different for somebody new coming in. So it's really about building a relationship understanding the individual their background their experience what they need to thrive in um in your environment and also talking to them about how your environment works the way things Hmm. happen around here people do go for coffees whatever it is um but it's a really important point um and it's it's such a simple thing that doesn't cost a lot to invest in in terms of the time, but actually pays back massively in terms of getting people up to speed and performing, you know, more quickly.
0: I've seen a great um, guidebook that's given by the software development house, um, Valve, uh, which is a bit kind of West Coast, North America and a bit kooky as a result, but it, it sort of takes their team members through the realities of the culture involved. a slightly jokey ways. It will sort of say things like, you know, if you want to know what's going on in the organization, hang around the coffee machine, or, you know, this is where we really hide the biscuits or just some daft, kooky stuff, but it, but it really makes a difference. I think in terms of saying, look, this is the realities of our culture. This is how we work. Um, here are some of our eccentricities for good and for bad, rather than being especially corporate about the whole thing. I think that, that really helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and it is those little things, and it's those things that make people feel part of something, um, and feel part of something quickly, which is really important <clears throat> when people join an organisation.
0: So, so we've got people in the organisation; they're a really talented, diverse group. We've got them uh, feeling comfortable in the being there. Um, let's talk a little bit about how we how we help them feel that they're improving in the roles they play and sort of development programs we can provide to them. You and I started working together in a development-focused business way back when. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the types of, of sort of training and development offers that are provided by corporates now? And I say that with a sort of a recognition probably that sport is is way behind the curve in terms of the kind of things it could or probably should be offering to its people.
1: Yes, I think it's interesting and I think actually it's- my experience of um, SMEs versus corporates is that actually this is where SMEs can really take the the lead because often what happens in, in large corporates is, you know, you have big development programs. It's quite generic. It's sort of sheep dipping people through things because they've got big budgets to do it and so on. Actually, the most important thing that development is really targeted and specific to the individual. And, you know, now there are so many opportunities. If you think development comes in so many different guises, it's not just necessarily about classroom-based training. Um, So the most important thing is really understanding what are the needs at an organisational level and then what are the individual needs and how can you give people that development and there are so many different ways you know through shadowing through mentoring coaching succumbments special project projects you know podcasts books um and actually people develop and learn in different ways so i think if you if you can curate the particular development that is suitable for your organisation and at an individual level and actually be quite creative with it, you can do it much more cost-effectively than historically people would have been able to do and actually much more targeted for what the individual needs. I mean, I've seen some organisations that have got very small budgets do things like give people a number of days and then help them create the particular development that works for them, but actually getting them then to present to their team um, or in smaller groups, things they've learned. So bring that learning back in. So make sure that people are actually utilizing the time effectively um, but you know, giving some responsibility to the individual. What is it that you need, and how are you best going to get that? Um, so, I think definitely doing targeted development, and I and I think for smaller businesses, because of the nature of not having big budgets, often. Um, you can do some really creative stuff with that. And of course, there are lots of platforms where you can, you know, if, you, if you've if you got the budget to do it, where you can buy, um, you know, a whole host of, of, of different options. But actually, you can do it much more cost effectively.
0: Uh, and you helped us with all sorts of ideas for that through, through Two Circles, um, early stage of our journey. And, and I guess what um, the conclusion I came to, Uh, was that sport actually has a couple of really good things in its favor in this regard. Firstly, um, you know, we all end up working in sport because we're highly intrinsically motivated. And so the idea of being better at our jobs, um, irrespective of any financial reward that might come with that, is is really important to pretty much everybody who works in the industry, first thing. Second thing, um, actually, the coaches – the training support that goes into to performance on the pitch is really highly prized. So it's not like a corporate environment. Some corporate environments where coaching might be seen as a remedial thing. You know, it's front and center of of delivering excellence on the on the pitch day in and day out. Uh, and I had a bit of a, a question about that one, if that's okay, which is um, been asked a few times um, over the course of the last couple of years. And I don't have time to do too much of it, but whether I coach somebody or whether I mentor somebody. Uh, in a role, and and um, I found in myself, but also um, in particular, a couple of examples in other people a really co- real confusion over what the difference is and when coaching is the right solution versus more of a mentoring type support. Can you help colour that in for us at all?
1: Yeah so i think mentoring is often on the job so it's 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 that just in time support and that might be specific sort of harder skills or indeed it might be the more leadership behavioral skill set um But you would expect with mentorship that actually the mentor has expertise that they're imparting. So I might mentor um, an an HR professional because that's my area of expertise. Um, And mentors can work really well for people that are new in role or have been newly promoted or um, sometimes in organizations, you know, If you've got um, somebody that's top talent and has identified for a future leadership role, you might want to give them them some support in thinking about the move to that sort of role. Um, So, but it tends to be using somebody with expertise in that particular field, whatever you're trying to mentor them in, Mm -hmm. as opposed to coaching. I mean, the whole premise of coaching is that actually it's about facilitating the individual to find the answer for themselves. So a coach doesn't need to be an expert in that field. And in most instances, the coach won't be that their expertise is in facilitating an individual to find the answer for themselves and work through something For themselves, so coaching can be great in terms of supporting career and development conversations, or supporting individuals through a particular period of change. Um, And you know, they've been great. I've seen leaps and bounds in terms of things like you know when people are returning from maternity leave and offering maternity return coaching. You know, when somebody's going through a particular transition in their um, in their life. So for me the distinction is about actually imparting expertise and supporting somebody through your expertise as a mentor as opposed to coaching somebody to work through a particular issue or problem for themselves
0: that that makes sense and that makes me relieved because in most instances i've been saying i don't i'm not a trained coach i don't have the 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 deep skill that it needs to ask the right questions to get people to reflect on their own development, but I do have some knowledge I can share in the right occasions, and so I definitely see myself at the the kind of mentoring area of that continuum. And and often will say, "Well, sorry, I don't think I'm the right person to coach it in this instance." Um, okay, so we've got we've got people, great diverse team in the organisation now. Um, they feel very comfortable there. They're flying along in terms of their own performance as a result of the great development plans we put in um And the shadow side of that, of course, is is all of our competitors are now looking at those people going, "Blimey, they're good." um How do we get them to come and join us instead? So, what really makes people stay in an organisation nowadays, and has that changed also?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think it's interesting. I mean, if I reflect on my career, I think that there has always been discussions about a war on talent, uh, you know, and right from the early days of of my career. I What has changed, I think, are a couple of things. I think, firstly, um, I think individuals are more discerning about what they want out of an organization and out of their career. Mm-hmm. So I think, historically, um, people wanted perhaps very clearly defined, you know, this is the sort of career, the role... This is the package I'm looking for. And now individuals want much more than that. They really want to understand how an organization operates. You know, what's its purpose? Like, do I feel aligned to that? What's What are their values? Culturally, is this going to be the right environment for me? And, you know, more and more people are looking at, you know, what's an organization doing around things like diversity? What, what are they doing around the environment and the sustainability agenda. So um, people are asking, I think, much more searching questions about the organization and its sort of DNA, rather than just where it operates in the market and the specific role. So I think that has changed. I think the other thing that has changed in the last two years in the pandemic, I think people have started to think about actually what do i want out of life and how how do i want to live my life and how do i want to get the right balance and what does that mean for me and so i think we've seen people really starting to question actually do i want to work the sort of hours i've been working do i want to do the commute i've been doing um and lots of organizations have seen people move further away um the sort of hybrid working thing has become much more prevalent. So so I think those are the things that have changed. But, but fundamentally, good people have choices. And I, I don't think that has changed.
0: Hey, have you seen organizations manage that process of their staff saying, actually, I want more flexibility. I don't want to be half here five days a week. I've moved to Plymouth, whatever it might be. what what, how can organizations handle that well
1: well I I mean I think it's happening now I think organizations are in the midst of that Um, and I know organizations that have said no we're back to the office and our expectation is that you're back in the office Um, I think some organizations have said we will let people choose and I think Other organisations are trying this concept of, you know, we have an expectation that you will be in an office two or three days a week. I think my counsel would be working out with your people what is right for your organisation, what is right, and then what is right for the individual. And it's about a dialogue. I don't think there's a right or wrong, and it will be different for all organisations um and i think the interesting thing is there is what's the impact on performance or you know productivity or profitability however you measure those things in your organization versus what is the impact that it's had on the culture and that will have an impact on those performance metrics but probably further down the line and and so i think you know organizations yet don't know but I think I have seen a significant shift culturally in organisations with people being virtual most of the time. You know, we were talking earlier about new people joining. How hard is it joining a new organisation when you actually don't physically see anybody? Um, So I think my advice would be that really trying to be clear and challenging yourself about why you want people in, office, in an office or why you don't, um, and actually trialing stuff and talking to your people and saying, look, this is what we want to try. We, we want to hear what works for people, and we want to try and accommodate that. And as a business, this is what we think we need. So I think having that open dialogue, not putting very rigid, it has to be this or it has to be that, um and uh, and seeing how it works but you're right i mean in the organisation that i've been part of uh, uh, i think we had about 10 people over the last 18 months make decisions to move further afield mm-hmm. so it it's not an easy one
0: it's interesting actually so flying around london again over the course of the last few months i've sort of been in a number of different organisations and um a lot of them have said you know our assumption was that that some of our younger members of staff slightly more renegade slightly more take it or leave it was our assumption in terms of the way they engage with the company they would be the ones saying oh we'll come in for a day a week if you're lucky and actually the younger ones are in every day the younger ones feed off the culture the younger ones may be working in a box room in their back bedroom if they have a back bedroom in their in their homes in in cities traditionally just want to get out and want to get back into into what they would perceive as normal life and actually it's some of the older um, generations dare i say it the people like you and i who are are sort of looking to be a little bit more choosy about where and how they work maybe also live slightly further away from work as well um is you seeing that as a consistent pattern or 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 is each organization as you suggest just, just entirely different?
1: absolutely um i'm seeing that and and i think it is easy it's 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 easy for those of us that are sort of later on in our career and um as you say may have other priorities that we're trying to juggle alongside work and and therefore a more hybrid way of working has probably benefited people like that but for, for young people early on in your career and as you say might be in a shared house with three or four other people trying to work Um, it's just not conducive often to work from home but actually learning from other people interacting building the the sort of communities that you do is really important Um, and I think that's what we have to and that was my point about that may not show up immediately in productivity or your profitability numbers. So everybody working from home, well, actually, it hasn't had any impact on revenue. It's not just about that. And so this is why I think it's so important to have that dialogue and talk to your people. And I I think you're right, Matt, that lots of organizations will find that lots of people do want to be in an office um And and do want to feel part of something, and that coming together it, it is really powerful.
0: To play devil's advocate here, is there, is there a risk do you think that we end up in is almost exacerbating some of the generational tensions that I definitely notice happening in in some offices where you know you have a longer population saying, um, "Where are all the older brackets, senior people? They just can't be asked to come in anymore. It's always us doing the late shift, and they're swatting around." at home having I mean, a gin and tonic at six, five past six, and the older people thinking, "Yeah, we're the ones who can't get into the office as much as we'd love to. We're trying to juggle the fact the kids are home from school. Um, they've got their GCSEs going on. We're also trying to look over after elderly parents who are, who are a bit afraid of going out, and they're, they're both in their own little worlds, not really understanding the worlds of, of, of the other side of the coin because they're not talking to each other.
1: Yes, I think so. And I would say, I think those tensions have always been there. So I'm not sure that that has changed in a sense. Um, But I think you're right. There is a danger that, um, you know, we make assumptions about what works for different people. I mean, the great thing about having a diverse organization and diverse in terms of, um, the the generational thing is just as important as any other form of diversity, is that you know, having diversity can be transformational for your organization because actually you're going to get different views, different thoughts, different experiences um, that is really powerful. What's important, I think, in leading an organization where you have that diversity. Is making sure that the different voices are represented. So you're not just designing policies or processes that are suitable for one group of people. So saying everybody can work from home permanently may alienate those in those of the younger generation, but similarly flipping it on its head. So I so I think it is about trying to make sure everybody is represented and you are listening to all um, individuals within your organization. And, you know, that's a real challenge because often, you know, executive teams or boards often tend to be individuals of a similar age group. So actually making sure that you're not just creating your own narrative at a board table with people that are very similar and like-minded you know you need to go and test some of that stuff go and talk to um different individuals with a different perspective in your organization before you make decisions
0: and that's one of the things we're seeing front and center in sport at the moment where you know a lot of the people at the top of the tree um might have been promoted to that position because um they've been excellent salespeople of of, of inventory that, that belongs to almost a different century, or um, they've been exceptional leaders of people in terms of on pitch performance, um, or they just come from a corporate environment struggling to get their head now around uh, the sports space. Uh, and yet you have the sports organizations themselves that are sort of making a pivot from being administrators, um, and organizers of games to almost sort of media platforms in terms of the way they have to operate. And that's, you know, it's creating some pretty significant shifts, but they're shifts I know you've seen in different environments, right? So you've seen Curry's morph into a, um, a retailer for a, for a digital era, you've worked in outdoor retail, I know, which has changed beyond all measure, professional services and, and so on. So um, what's the point, so if you could generalize across all those experiences, um and i was asking you to counsel the, the sports industry what's the point where you know your organizational structure just has to change what what do you notice when you think it just is not work anymore
1: yes yeah, so i think there are some obvious flags so you know are, are people tripping over one another so you know have you got sort of duplicate effort individuals or teams doing the same thing or there's a sort of lack of clarity about where that baton passes and I think the other thing is you know where are the issues or the pinch points that that aren't working for you so if you look at your your business model end-to-end or your customer journey or whatever it is um you know where are the tensions I, I think those are the red flags. And, uh, and I guess the other obvious one is, particularly with growing businesses, that often as you grow, you find that actually you're not becoming any more profitable because you're not getting efficiencies of scale. And actually you're having to grow your, um, your cost base in line with your revenue growth. So again, that's a, a red flag that probably structurally things aren't quite right.
0: We felt at two circles, I think it was about every 18 months, we sort of flipped the structure around, um, but, but hopefully did a reasonable job of, of sort of both warning and engaging the organization in, around that process. Uh, I guess sometimes we felt like we were, we were making really significant changes and sometimes we were, we were I guess the word would be tinkering um, with the structure um are are you of a mindset that says look you're better off almost permanently tinkering with how things fit together or are you more of a mindset and say no kind of embrace it all in in one big go every sort of three years or so
1: i would definitely be an advocate of evolution rather than revolution Mm -hmm. um and uh, you know i mean the business world is constantly changing I, i don't think in any business that i've worked with it's ever static for very long Um, and and therefore I think you should be continually evolving it looking and looking forward what's happening in the market what are you having to um, think that you need to be preparing for so I would definitely advocate um, sort of constant evolution Uh, and I mean you just touched on a really important point Matt I think Taking your organisation with you is really important. So senior individuals sat in a room designing a structure in a a vacuum is just never a good idea. Um, But, I mean, it happens a lot (laughs) um, and it still happens a lot. Um, So I just think it is so important that actually you engage the individuals that are actually on the ground working, working with um, your people, working with your customers to really understand the nuances and, and what is really going on. Um, so being as transparent as possible with your people. And of course, there are times, you know, it, it may be that you have to reorganize because you need to take cost out and therefore there are different um, considerations there but being as transparent and open as you can with people and talking to them about the why you need to evolve and change things is just so important
0: so so i guess to enable that sort of constant iteration and engaging the whole organization in the change and some of the things we talked about on on the pod before actually i particularly with alex willis in our, our last one um what that means is you need uh, somebody who's very well versed, very experienced in in people strategy and HR at the at the shoulder of the chief exec. And one of the things that surprises me in particular in sports rights holders actually is is actually how far removed HR seems from the top table, especially compared to some of the corporate businesses or the even the sports tech type businesses that that I see. Um, and you might argue that some of the most spectacular cock ups of the sports industry of the last, um, two or three years would have been avoided if, if there had been more people experiencing space in place. Um, so I know you're a lot of your work, almost all of your work now is, is at the top board table, either as a director yourself or as an NED, um, what do you look for in an experienced HR director or experienced people person? And and how do you persuade the chief executive that, that they need to play a very real role in the organization?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really interesting. I, I think that people are such a significant part of every organization and not having people represented at the top table is... sort of a bit of an anathema to me because how can you have a a business strategy that doesn't involve a a people strategy as part of that you know I I mean arguably the people strategy absolutely should be linked to the business strategy and without a, a good people strategy i would argue that the business is going to not be able to deliver what it needs to so i think what has been, the issue has been that historically hr has been seen as a sort of policing function and policing policies and like any support function it is really important that it is business additive and that the business is getting real benefit from it and it's not just a, a, a sort of policing of policy um so i think you know i mean i have always seen myself as a business leader and my area of expertise happens to be hr i'm as likely to challenge the business model or the margin model as i am the people stuff <laughs> and i think um i think that you need people um that see themselves in that way and really want to understand what is the business trying to do um, and what does it need to do to succeed? And then actually, what do we need to do in terms of the people agenda to make that happen?
0: Perhaps one of the challenges we see here is that a lot of the senior leaders we talked about earlier on, you know, might have been in post for 10 years. Um, I working in a very different industry for the 15 years before that. And I've actually never seen an effective people strategy and the impact it can have on a business. However, the great irony, of course, is they, they see effective people strategy day in and day out with the coaches they hire to deliver performance on the pitch. Uh, and it's, it's just making sure that, that the, the same philosophy won't be the same payroll, clearly, but the same philosophy applies to behind the scenes as, as well as on the pitch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean, I think HR has a has a a role to play in this, because I think, you know, being really clear, what are the metrics that um, you're measuring yourselves against? And, you know, those are have gone beyond the attrition or time to hire measures that historically people would have had. But all the stuff we've talked about, about diversity and um you know, there are so many metrics now that actually we should be holding ourselves to account for um, within HR and demonstrating the value that those things bring to an organization. Um, you know, and and as you say, I mean, the, one of the most critical things in any organization is the whole talent planning piece. You know, actually, your workforce planning, your succession planning, To retain, you know, you need to attract, retain and develop the best people. And those, the best people will have choices. And actually, um, you need to be ensuring that you are, you know, ahead of your competitors in terms of what they are doing and all of those things um, to ensure that you you have the best people and you can keep them.
0: I remember when we were talking to different private equity structures at two circles and one of the first questions all of them asked for a people service business was well what's your success in planning yeah you know, what does that look like over the next five to ten years which i i think partially was about saying matt you look a bit old <laughs> partially about the fact that you know that's business critical and there's a temptation in this space to think that you know succession planning doesn't carry a an inherent value for your business but it absolutely does and this stuff all absolutely does and i encourage anyone to have a conversation with pe for more than 30 minutes and uh, and still believe that the people strategy shouldn't be at the heart of any organization because it you know the very tangible value of it is, is clear when you find yourself in one of those conversations
1: sorry the other thing i was just going to say matt quickly was i think the other interesting thing that's happening in the corporate space which i think will filter through um into smaller businesses is that actually large corporates are really being held to account now on, on the stuff around their people agenda and and actually you know historically where NEDs would have come from a background you know be it finance digital international experience whatever it is more and more they're wanting people with that people experience to hold, you know, to challenge the people strategy. Um and you know, I think that is rightly is happening in the corporate space and and I think that will just continue.
0: It's funny, I remember vividly uh, having a meeting with Gareth uh Bullshit, CO2 Circles, Claire. Uh, was CFO and myself as chair, and, and you being in that four-way meeting with us, um, effectively a sort of extended board meeting, and, and you said something like, with respect, I think that's absolute nonsense. <laughs> and when over the course of two to three minutes, just helped us understand how some of our assumptions we were making about our, our people strategy for the two or three years ahead was, at best, superficial. Uh, and I guess, from a senior leaders, it needs the openness to hearing that, uh, but it also needs people with your kind of background step into that board space and say, "Look, you know we need to think more carefully about this. what is it that we 're doing on this or that and and how do we move forward because you 're right um if the If the markets and shareholders aren 't challenging it, the employees themselves certainly are absolutely it was you did it very politely though to be fair
1: good well,
0: <laughs> one one more that I wanted to ask about um all of us are juggling P&Ls and balance sheets or most of us are juggling them and they're, they're tighter than they were two or three years beforehand. And um, at the same time, we have cost of living and retail price initiation going through the roof and that interest rate's going up. None of that's going to change anytime soon. How do we manage the conversation with our teams who've had a horrific two years, manage the conversation about, about comp and ban and pay?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I think the interesting thing is I think – Lots of organizations that I speak to, they are in a time where they have been really squeezed and, you know, it's been a really Mm -hmm. tough couple of years. They are all advocating putting in above inflation pay rises, um, you know, the sort of percentages that I don't think I've seen for years because they've got no, they've got no option. And they, you know, they recognize the challenge that their people are having and that if they want to retain their people, actually they need to, to make significant um, pay awards um, because lots of organizations have frozen pay for the last couple of years. So I think we are seeing um, that a lot and that, might not have been what we would have expected to see I think the most important thing is being really transparent about what is what is achievable and you know if an organization can't do a significant pay rise this year setting out the pay strategy over the next three years and that this is our intention I think is really important because if if there are challenges for this year, actually, what is your intentions for the next two years? Because yeah. individuals will be looking at that. Um, so I think it's about being really clear on what you are able to do and what is your full, you know, it's not just about base salary. So, so what is your employee value proposition in its broadest sense? Um, because, you know, as i mentioned earlier individuals are much more discerning now about what they want and it's not just about pay or benefits but it's about the cultural environment it's about the work environment if you know i want hybrid working are you going to enable me to do that so actually being really clear about what your offer is in its broadest sense i think is really important
0: it makes complete sense i actually talked to a couple of organizations for whom um They've found their employees for the first time being really engaged in and inquiring of the detail of of the health benefits they provide, and actually in a really one, one of them's in a really interesting conversation with their team around post COVID, what does what does good care for employees look like in the health side, and, and they found that to be a really rich area of of dialogue.
1: Yes, and I, I think if you can offer flexibility in terms of your. Um, reward offering because at different stages of people's lives different things matter right so you know for for some people pension is going to be really important for other people it may be private health care it may be you know cycle to work you know it, it is different for people at different stages in their life so you know if you can offer flexibility and give people choice And say, actually, this is the pot there is, but actually you have got some ability to decide what that is spent on for you, you know, buying and selling holiday, whatever it is. I think giving people some flexibility and ability to make choice is actually a really powerful thing.
0: Spot on. Well, listen, um, to round this out, this is going to be tough. Um, we, We ask everybody if they can sum up. Uh, their main message from the pod in in 10 words or less and we've touched on just remind you recruitment talent development coaching versus mentoring uh, retention generational shift org design and HR at the center of board decision making so good luck
1: (laughs) I, I think my message is listen to what your people are telling you Um, your people are your biggest asset, and they know your business intimately. One CEO that I've worked with, um, he started these listening groups during um, the pandemic, because wanted to sort of keep in touch with all the different, and this is in a big footsie um, 250 business, wanted to keep in touch with what's happening in distribution, what's happening in operations, etc. And, And he put in place these listening groups and actually has kept them going and is going to continue with them because he said the nuggets of of things that I have learned and actually have then made me make a different decision or take a decision that I might not have taken otherwise has been so invaluable. So my message would be talk to your people. Um, really understand what is going on from, for them and and what they need and how the business can support that. And, and that will pay dividends.
0: Very good. So listen to what your biggest asset are telling you, is telling you, are telling you, whatever. <laughs> That's a really nice way to close out. Uh, thanks ever so much for taking so much time. I know that you've um, been involved in a really detailed very emotive integration for six months and I slightly abused our friendship by trying to get you out (laughs) for international women's day, but it actually, some of the content couldn't have been more appropriate for, 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 for a day like today. So big, thank you for taking time. Where can people get hold of you?
1: Um, So people can get hold of me on LinkedIn is probably um, the best way. Um, So, yeah, and it's been great, really great to chat as ever um and you know so much in there that w- we could have gone off down a number of tangents but um yeah it was it was great to chat this
0: is probably our shortest conversation of all time listen thanks ever so much look forward to grabbing that coffee take care
1: take care thanks
0: the Playbook podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Lab's residential executive training programme, head to sportspromedia.com playbook.